Hi guys. Hope you hope you're all doing great. Hope the week's been good to you and you're all set and ready to jump back in to this brilliant story of Jonah again this morning. Oh, but before we start, a massive thank you to Yanis and Xanthi. Thanks for doing our Bible reading as for us today. Awesome job, guys. Now, if you haven't been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to jump online and check out the first two parts of our study through this book of Jonah, where we unpack the setting, the backstory, and the first two chapters of this amazing book. Because today, we're going to jump right into the middle of the story. We're going to focus right in on chapter 3. So again, I invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up or turn them on, and we'll get back into the story. Now, if you remember back to week one, we set our mission to rediscover this amazing story of Jonah and look at it afresh, as if we were reading it for the first time, due to the unfortunate treatment of it from children's literature, which has made the story well known across Christian circles, but tragically has censored and simplified it down into a bland story that says, stop doing bad things, or something like that. Which is so tragic, because as we've already discovered so far, this story is anything but bland. And it's only going to get better today, as Jonah finally makes it to this great city of Nineveh. Okay, so Jonah, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord, and remember, Lord in all caps means Yahweh, God's personal name, came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Yes, Jonah, finally, smart move. He's finally obeying God. God might have had to drag him through hell and high water, quite literally, But the point is, Jonah is finally going to Nineveh. Now, I just want to spend a bit of time here to really focus in on this city of Nineveh. As we've already discussed in previous weeks, Nineveh is the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire, the largest and most brutal world empire yet created. So Nineveh was almost like the capital of the world at its peak, from around the 700s to the early 600s BC. The Assyrians didn't last too much longer, however, because they just grew and grew so rapidly, they kind of collapsed under their own weight. And so the Babylonians swoop in and take over from the Assyrians and become the next world empire. So in order to learn a bit about this great city of Nineveh and the Assyrians living in the city, I want, I want to take you back back to 1845. So picture this, you're a British archaeologist. Your name is Sir Austin Henry Layard, and you're part of a five-man team. You're working in Iraq, and you're excavating the site of this very ancient city of Nineveh. This is the city, the city where Jonah's going. So you're working away, and you come across, you uncover the king's palace within these ancient ruins. Now, within this palace, you find all these rooms. And on some of the walls within these rooms, to your amazement, you find all these amazing wall carvings 
These things have just been sitting there in the dirt for over two and a half thousand years. These carvings are like two and a half meters high. They run right from the floor all the way up to the ceiling. So you and your team are absolutely stoked with this amazing find. And over the next 11 years, all these carvings are uncovered and very gently transported back to the British Museum in London, where you can go and see them today. Well, maybe one day when international borders open up again. Now, what these carvings depicted and show was the battle the Assyrians won when they took siege over the Israelite city of Lachish in 701 BC. So as a whole, these carvings came to be known as the Lachish reliefs. So do you want to see a couple of these carvings? Of course you do. Hopefully they'll come up on your screen. Awesome. So this one here is my favourite. And as you can see, it's not in the best condition, but neither would you be if you were over two and a half thousand years old. But I love this one because it gives us a big picture overview of the battle, which would have probably lasted if weeks, if not months. So Lachish is this big Israelite city on a hill. And like most cities of the time, it had a big wall around it. So you can see here, before the Assyrians could even start to attack, they had to build all these mud brick ramps to get up to the top of the wall. Then after the ramps were built, they designed all these ingenious, amazing shielded wheeled siege mobiles, and they'd push these up the mud brick ramps. And as you can see, all the Assyrian archers and soldiers are protected in behind these siege mobiles from the Israelite archers and soldiers on top of the walls. These Assyrians were brilliant. And of course, once the Assyrian soldiers were inside the walls, they could just go to work because the Israelite soldiers, well, they were already freaking out. Why? Well, take a look down at the bottom of the carving in the middle there. The Assyrians, as the battle had been going on, any of the Israelite soldiers they'd already captured, they had these wooden poles which they'd sharpened to a point at one end and they'd just impale the captured Israelite soldiers on these poles and then set them in the ground. So as the battle is going on, the people of Lachish and the soldiers in the city are just looking out at their colleagues as they slowly die a torturous death impaled on these posts. These Assyrians were brutal. And as you can see, just to the left of the impaled soldiers, just above the damage section there, the people of the city are already fleeing. They've got as much as they can carry on their, sh on their shoulders and are getting out of there. They're just fleeing the city while they still can. Which brings us to the next image I want to show you. So once the Assyrians get inside and take the city, they grab some Israelite soldiers or maybe some of the rulers of the city. They strip them naked and string them up. And if you look closely, these guys have knives and they are skinning alive these Israelites in front of the people. Now, I'm sure we probably forget a lot about our day-to-day -day life. 
you most definitely do not forget the day you saw someone getting skinned alive. Could you just imagine? The Assyrians would then just gather up all of the people of the city and march them off into the Assyrian Empire to work as slaves. This is how the Assyrians rolled. And you can only imagine the fear this created as news of scenes like this spread across the ancient world. You do not mess with the Assyrians. They will skin you alive. Now, we might be thinking, yeah, how reliable are these carvings? They could be just like some propaganda tool of some evil Assyrian king. But we know from other sources and other manuscripts from this time period that this battle of Lachish actually took place. Namely, the manuscripts we have open in front of us today. The siege of Lachish is actually mentioned in the Bible back in 2 Kings chapter 18 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. How cool is this? We have archaeological evidence from the enemy of God's people, the Assyrians, which verify and support the authenticity of the Bible. I think that's pretty awesome, don't you? I mean, it's totally plausible that these carvings could have been in the palace on the king's walls as Jonah walks up to the city of Nineveh. Okay, so the history lesson is over now, and you might be bored to tears right now, but I do believe this is helpful. You see, this is the bringing clarity glasses moment I was talking about way back in week one of our series. Because this knowledge causes us to look at Jonah and the whole story differently now, doesn't it? You can totally understand why Jonah ran from his calling to confront these guys. And this also fills out why Jonah might be harboring a deep hatred for the Assyrian Ninevites. It also helps to explain the hatred the Israelite readers, the author's intended audience, may have for the Assyrians and the impact that this story would have brought to them. Okay, let's get back to the passage. Chapter 3, verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Hmm, this is weird. From chapter 1, what did God tell Jonah to preach about in Nineveh? Chapter 1, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, God. But what do we get from Jonah? Eight words in English, and in Hebrew, it's even less. It's only five. We get a five-word sermon. Now, I know what you're thinking. I wish this guy would practice what he preaches about because I'm already hundreds of words into mine. But what does Jonah fail to mention? Anything at all about the Assyrians' wickedness? Could this overturning be avoided? And who does Jonah fail to even mention? God, his God, Yahweh, the one who he's supposed to be speaking on behalf of. Now, I don't know much about preaching, but I'm pretty sure mentioning God is pretty much a must. 
Could it be that Jonah is intentionally leaving this out? Hmm. There's something fishy going on here, pun intended, with this five-word sermon. Could it be that his hatred of his enemy, the Assyrians, runs so deep, he still, even after the whole fish thing, doesn't want them to find God's forgiveness and grace? We don't know. We'll have to keep reading. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then the king ordered, Don't let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Wow! I mean... Wow, what a response. What does it say? The Ninevites believed who? Not Jonah, God. Now that's just strange. Jonah didn't even mention God. And remember, this is the capital of the most brutal evil nation the world has ever seen. But the hearts of these people of Nineveh are just so soft and open to God's word. They get a dodgy five-word sermon from Jonah and they all just respond immediately and turn from their evil ways. Life as they knew it is turned upside down. But not only that, they are obviously just filling in all the gaps Jonah has maybe intentionally left out. And then they take it a step further. They all start fasting and put on itchy sackcloth to show that they are fair dinkum about this God, Yahweh. Now, this is really profound because this right here gives us a clear biblical depiction of what belief in Yahweh is really all about. The Ninevites believed God. How do we know? It's just obvious. You can see it through their actions. They come to faith in Yahweh and their lives are completely changed. Now, this is in stark contrast to the Jonah of chapter 1, verse 9, that we looked at last week, who will spin us some ridiculous religious line about how he worships and fears Yahweh, but shows us, through his actions, he clearly does not. Belief in this God Yahweh is not just about some mental decision or being able to spout some religious words. It's a complete life change which is evident through our actions. We don't just tell someone we believe in God, we show them. But it gets even better, because somehow Jonah's sermon goes viral before social media and makes it all the way to the king's palace. And the king's heart is just as soft as the people of Nineveh. And in fact, he takes it a step further. He puts aside his robes and his throne, the very things which make him the king of the world and sits down in the dust to acknowledge and show his newfound belief in the true king of the world, Yahweh God. But then this Assyrian king takes it a step further again. 
he gets not only the people, but all of the animals of Nineveh to do the same. Fast, put on sackcloth, and turn from their evil ways. Now that's just weird. What did the cows do wrong? How did they sin? Well, maybe Clarabelle and Daisy coveted the grass over in Bessie's paddock because, of course, the grass is always greener on the other side. And can you just imagine Daisy and Clarabelle struggling as they try and grip the sackcloth with their hoofs to put it on? Apparently that's a hoof. Daisy finally gets hers on and and she turns to Clarabelle. Does my udders look big in this? I had to be careful with udders there. But you get the point. And I hope you're laughing right now because we can just see the author using humour and exaggeration so brilliantly here to just highlight how extreme and sincere the Ninevites are about their newfound belief in God and that it's resulted in a profound change in every life in the city of Nineveh, even the cows. Okay, let's straighten up. Let's get back to the passage. Verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Yikes, as my son would say. And we were just having so much fun with the cow gag and now we're hit with this line. Right, so God is this judgmental being looking over us and he's so ticked off and angry at us, he's going to kill us. Great. I thought the Bible says God is loving. It's not loving to judge. How does that work? As we heard, 1 John 4 says God is love. John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's the most famous verse in the Bible, at least in our culture. That can't be wrong. Maybe God is judgmental in the Old Testament and loving in the New because loving and judgmental just don't go together. Or do they? Let's try and paint a scenario that will help us illustrate and explain these characteristics of God. Okay, let's say you're getting in your hour or two of exercise and you're walking along Chelsea Beach. So you're just cruising down the beach and about 100 metres in front of you is this 15, 16-year-old young couple. They're walking along hand in hand and snuggling into one another and you're thinking to yourself, ah, how sweet, you know, young love, that whole thing. Anyway, you continue walking along the beach, but now you notice things start to change a bit in the body language of the young couple in front. And soon they start arguing. And from there, things just escalate to the point where the guy grabs the girl by the hair and starts dragging her along the sand. And she's just like screaming out for help at the top of her lungs. You look up ahead, you look behind. You're the only other person on the beach. Now, if you think to yourself, oh, young love, I'm sure they'll work it out and just keep walking. Is that the right thing to do? No, not at all. The right thing to do is to make a judgment that this behaviour is not acceptable, it's not cool at all, and that it's not at all okay to treat anyone, let alone a young girl, like this. So you'd have to step in and try and separate the young couple somehow. 
Through this judgment, love is shown to the girl by putting a stop to the abuse she was experiencing. Love is shown to the community that we live in by setting the precedent that this is not at all an acceptable way to treat another member of our community. And love is even shown to the guy by informing him that this is not an acceptable way to treat women because he's going to destroy his life and the lives of all women around him if he continues to treat women like this. So we can see judgment is not at all the opposite of love. Apathy or simply not caring is the opposite of love. Judgment, if done from the right place, can actually be an expression of love. This is so important that we get these character traits of God clear in our thinking. Because this is the God we follow and worship. We really need to do our best to try and understand him and these character traits. Because if God was simply an apathetic God who didn't care about the world and how screwed up it is, there would be no hope for our world. There would be no one or nothing to stop and hold accountable people for the horrible things that they do. Like the Assyrians who are skinning people alive. But this is terrible news for people like you and me. Because if God is a God who makes a right judgment on the wrongs that occur within our world and holds people accountable for the horrors they create, there might be hope for the world, but there is no hope for you and no hope for me. Because the world isn't just screwed up all by itself. God created a world that is not just good, but very good. It's the 7 billion people living in it, making 7 billion screwed up and self-centered decisions, which makes the world what it is today. We are the problem and must be judged and held accountable for our actions if, if there is to be any hope for our world. Yikes, all right? Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, I've got one more little story which I think will help explain this. I heard this a long time ago, and it's been really helpful for me to get my head around judgment and love. So let's say we've got these two young guys. They're like 12 or 13 years old, and let's say they're surfers. They're learning to surf, just a sport picked at random. So every weekend, they're down at the beach. They go on holidays along with their families together and they just spend all day together out in the water, sunrise to sunset. And this goes on for years. They're the bestest of mates. But life goes on and they drift apart for one reason or another and they go their separate ways. Okay, it's now 40 years later and one of the guys goes out for Friday night drinks with his mates. He has a few too many but decides to drive home anyway. So he's on the way home and he smashes straight into the back of a parked car. So the cops show up and they breathalyze him and of course he's over the limit so he loses his license and he's given a fine for that. But he is also given a court date because of course insurance won't cover him now and he's liable for the damage he's caused to the other car. 
So the date comes and he's sitting in the courtroom waiting for the judge. Finally, the judge comes out, you know, all rise, that whole thing. But he can't believe his eyes because the judge is actually his old surfing buddy he grew up with. And he is stoked. He can't believe his luck. He hopes his old mate will recognise him, but he's sure his old mate will recognise his name in the court documents. So he is thinking, sweet, his buddy will let him off for sure. So the case plays out and it comes to the end and the judge, judge reads out the, his final judgment on the case. He's caused 25000 dollars worth of damage to the other car. But the judge says he's only liable to pay $25,000. Now this guy is ticked off. He thought he was going to get off with no fine, or at the very least, a reduced sentence. But no, he gets nothing. Anyway, he's walking out of the courthouse very disgruntled, and he hears someone call his name. He spins around, and it's the judge, his old buddy. Now, this guy doesn't really want to speak to the judge. He's pretty peeved he's just been landed with this fine. But they have a short conversation and catch up on each other's stories. But then the judge has to go. So he passes his old mate an envelope and heads back into the courthouse. So the man who's just received the fine walks off to the bus stop because obviously he has no car license for a while now. And he sits down to wait for the bus. He opens up the envelope and finds inside a personal check from the judge for $25,000. Now, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this, but this simple little analogy has been helpful for me as I've tried to link God's divine judgment with his love. You see, if the judge had simply let his old surfing buddy off and didn't hand out the fine for the full amount... Would that be the just thing to do? No, of course not. The poor person who had their car destroyed would be left out of pocket because of someone else's stupid decisions and actions. So just like this little story, we have a judge who looks over the stupid, horrible decisions we make and he says, wow, I love you, but that is not good. And he makes a right judgment. And it's very severe I mean, how much more severe can you get than perishing? But through his love and compassion for us, he takes his own judgment onto himself and covers in, in full the punishment we deserve through the life of his son, Jesus. The Bible has a beautiful word to describe this. It's grace. Boy, this is good news for us. Okay, Back to the passage, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So while this grace of God is offered to us all, it requires us to do something before we can gain access to it. We have to do what the people of Nineveh and this Assyrian king did put aside our own throne or thrones and put aside our own self-made robes. We need to hand them over to him and sit down in the dust and accept that we aren't the king of our own world, let alone the whole world. And that Yahweh God alone, he is 
the true king of the world, and that it's through faith in him and acceptance of what his son did for us on the cross that we find his compassion and grace. And from here, we can grow and move forward to truly discover what we have been created to be. Wonderful images of God, able to now not just tell, but show the world of the compassion and grace we have been given. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you again for this amazing story of Jonah. Thank you, for, <clears throat> thank you for the profound truths which are revealed for us and the challenges it brings to our lives. We thank you that you are a just God and judge who cares deeply about what goes on in your world, but that you have moved towards us with such love that we can find grace through your Son. Amen.